What's up, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, 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 welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. This is your host, Josh Bridgman, and I am here to talk about training. So I thought I would, uh, why would, why did I do that? Someone just stop, pause, tell me why, message me. Okay. Uh, I wanted to do, so like, I realized the podcast is, is a lot more variety than, than say just bodybuilding because I've got other interests in bodybuilding and I do enjoy the podcast as like a like an agony on like a bit of a let me just get my thoughts off let me just you know talk for an extended period of time to myself to people listening it listening to it through the internet and I appreciate there's a lot of topics on there that we talk about we talk about life talk about drugs we talk about training nutrition all these different things so I, I wanted to bring it back down to the core and then just to solely talk about training today uh i know i know but there's a lot of training training questions a lot of training myths bro myths and i wanted to kind of just dispel them or agree with them one of the two um so i i, I asked the question on my instagram at josh bridgman fire over your training questions I, i'm not gonna ha- like i quite like the free ball right i like to just open them up and just go with it i do think there are certain topics that that need a little bit more expanse and they need some talking points and they need me to like make some make some notes about it. Um, but these short form questions, like they allow me to just reel off kind of what I know, which is kind of is the point of the podcast. Um, but quickly, like there's at least, there's at least 60, 70 questions here. I'm not gonna be able to get through all of them, but um, we'll do the best that we can and we'll just go through them. Forgive me if I stutter. Um, I've got to read these questions out and deliberate whether they're, podcast worthy while thinking of an answer <laughs> first question graham fleming big gray how are you does taking your himbine in the morning fasted uh, impact resistance training so the only way that i can see your himbine impacting resistance training is by having your heart rate a little higher on general in general on in in general uh, which may promote a slightly more sympathetic state which just means that you're a little bit more adrenaline pumped a little bit more less prime for recovery and stuff, which is fine um, because you don't necessarily want to be parasympathetic or you don't want to be in that recovery mode when you're training. You do want to be sympathetic. So you may get a positive in the fact that you've got a sympathetic drive. You've got a higher heart rate. You've got higher blood pressure. I mean, high blood pressure doesn't necessarily mean there's more performance, but you're pushing more blood through your blood volume through your arterial walls. Um, so, so like there may be an effect in the fact that you're slightly more fo- slightly more up for it in the fact that your heart rate's a little bit higher, but also in that fact that your heart rate's a little bit higher. And there is intra-set recovery that, we, that doesn't really get talked about, but you might notice when you have a really, really stimmy pre-workout, quite heavy on the caffeine or heavy on the stimulants, that actually you, your workout, you gasp a little bit quicker, or you gas a little bit quicker, sorry. Um, and this may just be because your heart rate's too high in between sets and it's it's not giving you the ability to recover uh, quick enough because your heart rate's too high and and your himbine may have that effect you you do get um a pretty good co- tolerance to your himbine fairly quickly ish um so i wouldn't worry too much in the long term um but i wouldn't be using it for uh resistance training but yeah it, there may be a downstream effect but it will be personal to you i would assume would you always choose to have a training partner if possible? If I could choose my training partner, then yes. I am a very, very, very good trainer on my own. Like I can bring myself to failure. I, I'm very good in the fact that I don't need people 
I don't don't need people to push me on. I don't need I don't need someone to say, "Come on, then three more." Like I just fucking know that I'm going to failure, and that's it. So I'm quite proud, I say, in the fact that I can do that. And I did spend a lot of um, the first segment of this off season training alone, and I'm probably going to spend a lot of the second segment training alone. But I've had this quarantine time now where I've been training with people and, and it has been really, really good. And I've really, really benefited from having these people around me. Now, it's not that they're as strong as me and that's got absolutely fuck all to do with training with someone. They've just got the fucking mentality. They've got the warrior mode in them. They've got the they've got the same wavelength of like, right, the set's on, let's fucking go now. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 and that environment and seeing someone push themselves further than... I feel like they can push themselves. Like I see that every day in, in the boys that I train with, Will, Mitch, Ethan, I think, oh, they're gonna stop now. And they keep going and, and that motivates me regardless of the weight that they do. It, it, it's, it's irrelevant. So would you always choose a training partner if possible? I think I would now. If I could have someone that could really fucking take me there, I really do think that it would make a big benefit in terms of getting to that IFBB Pro card in the long term because you've got these this environment that you create around you and it's very, very positive. I found it very, very positive the last 12 to, 12 to 16 weeks or whatever it is. How long do you spend in the gym? Uh, and what do you? What would you recommend? I spend about two and a half hours training at the moment. There's three of us, sometimes four of us that train. So it's a little bit slower for that reason. I don't see any problem having three-hour sessions. I don't see any problem having 90-minute sessions. Uh, it sort of just depends what time you've got available. You know, I'm just resting a little bit more between sets. You know, taking my time. There's no rush for me, you know. So a lot of it's just going to be time constraints. Would you agree that exercises that you enjoy are consistent? Oh, no. Would you agree that the exercises that you enjoy and are consistent, and are consistent with, sorry, there's no commas in this. This is difficult for me. Would you, would you agree that exercises that you enjoy and are consistent with trump the stereotypical big three? Stereotypical big three, Bench, bench press, squat, and a deadlift. Yes, I would. Um, I would say all three of those movements, if you take them for the face of it, in terms of bodybuilding, in terms of building a bigger chest, a bigger back, and bigger legs, which is typically what these things are for, I would say there are more efficient movements. And we can leave it at that. Does injection day impact on your performance? Um, increasing the day after the juice. Uh, it shouldn't do. If you're if you're dosing your your anabolics right, you shouldn't really notice too much of a difference. You shouldn't be fluctuating a lot. You shouldn't be like, oh, I feel my jab yesterday. You should just be pretty consistent the whole time because you should have adequate injection frequency just to be um, safe. There's a second part to this. Does it add to higher androgen sensitivity? No, it doesn't make it doesn't make a difference. Best ways to improve ankle flexibility: um, stretch would be your best port of call, religiously stretch, work on your ankle, uh, rotation, internal rotation, external rotation, you know, work it in that full range of motion. I would even try things like wobble boards to really strengthen the ligaments there. You can get a lot, you can, like the stronger a ligament is, the the easier it's going to hold in place. You know, so you've got a huge ligament that runs down the bottom of your foot and a lot of people have a really weak ligament which causes flat feet. It's not the only cause, but it's a cause. And actually doing things like little toe curls with, with with towels or maybe scrunching them in sand, you can strengthen, I'm talking about the feet, the foot in general, you can strengthen that ligament and then it kind of goes back to an arch and you get an arch back. It'd be very, very similar in the way of ankle mobility. Get stronger ankles, they're going to be 
flexible in their range of motion and then obviously stretch around it. Um, exercise selection techniques and volume that you find best for arm growth. So I, I've never had my arms grow better than when I've had an arm day. And that's been like, I, I remember back, back in the day, I used to throw arm days around all the time. To be fair, I used to throw them on when I was a little bit tired. And I was like, you know what? I can't be going squatting today. So I'll just throw an arm day on. And they were the best times that I grew. You know, it was a little bit less accurate as it is now. Um, but it's a little bit more accurate now. And, and I can give you a little bit of a good answer to this or a better answer to this. So exercise selection slash techniques techniques it doesn't need to be anything crazy no like drop sets supersets or anything like that it's going to be the same stimulus that grows the tricep and bicep that's going to be for a quad and, and, and a hamstring in terms of exercise selection i think arms and legs are probably the most unique things that we have like there's so many different humerus lengths which is the main big bone in the arm from shoulder to elbow femur length which is the knee to hip uh tibia fibia fibula and was it tibular? I should really I need to brush up my hand and that face. Um, and then the radius and ulnar, like like our arm lengths and leg length seem to vary the most out of like torso and chest, chest and back and stuff. So I find that having things that allow more free moving, free movement on legs and arms are, are a little bit more beneficial. So for example, on arms, I'd always be using a D handle like nine times out of ten for any curl because it just allows uh, free motion at the joint uh, of the, the wrist joint, the 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 elbow joint, and, and it allows a little bit of flexion extension in the shoulder joint as well. I would generally be using a cable because the cable is going to load you on the way down eccentrically and you can control that. We know that there's a lot of benefits to eccentric work. Um, in terms of volume, uh, sorry, more in exercise selection, cuffs for triceps, um, anything that crosses over in the line of path. This is very, very key. So if you stand up straight and you open up your biceps so you, you fully stretch them out, do you fully stretch them out straight down? If you do, that's really, really odd. But most people, to make them full, to, to stretch them fully out, you come out to the side. And you, I'm doing it right now. That's why you can hear me moving around. So you, you do, do it with me. Do it. Unless you're driving, do it with me. Sit up straight or stand up straight. Open up your hands you can see they're pointed outwards. This is how you should curl. You should curl in that line of path. Same thing for the tricep. You should pull out in that line of path. So it's never like, it's never going to be a vertical pull down. It's always going to be out to the side when it comes to arms because it's just the way that they're designed. So before you go into any movement, put your hands out wide. This is how it moves normally. Yeah, it is. All right, sweet. This is when you've got those people doing single arm cable over overs and they're keeping their elbow really tucked in it's like well naturally you don't do that you know let, let yourself come out a little bit and it'll be absolutely fine this is a good topic for a video actually because you can really really see the difference when you're doing it so uh volume um so so flexible start with six sets if you don't do arms start with six sets then go to eight then go to ten then go to twelve and then just slowly come up until the point that you can't progress anymore that's that's the quickest and easiest way that i can do it um, best exercise slash movement for a thick back. So in terms of thickness, we tend, like, it's going to be overall back development. It is. By the way, can you hear the birds? They just stopped. As I said that, of course it does. Um, you can, you need overall back development. It, there's new two ways about it. You cannot just vertically pull down you can't just do lap pull downs you can't just do bent over rows for it to grow you can't just do a deadlift and it grows you have to do all of it right 
So there's never going to be one single exercise that grows the muscle in thickness. Thickness just means more tissue. It doesn't. There's no like movement that is for thickness. People always think I do rows for thickness. I'll do pull downs for width. It, it, it literally does not work like that. It just works in ranges of motion, and it just so happens that a vertical pull down gives you a better range of motion on the lat. So in my head, actually, it makes sense for vertical pulls to give you a little bit more thickness. But my best advice: don't pick one music. Um, one music, don't pick one movement. Um, manipulate your vertical pulls, your horizontal pulls. Find the ones that fit you the best and match your resistance profiles. I, it's it's really not what you want to hear. But in fact, you know what? Let me be more specific for you. Um, a a a neutral grip pull down chest supported. So your hands will be facing in with each other at shoulder width apart, and you're going to be lying face down on a bench that's like ninety degrees, no seventy degrees angle and then you hook it over a lap pull down and pull forward. And then I'm gonna say something like a bent over row or a D-handle row or any kind of horizontal row that you can really stay fixed on. Again, chest supported. And then something like a deadlift or an RDL. So you've got a hip hinge, one big vertical pull, which would be the D-handle chest supported pull down. And then you've got one big horizontal pull which would be a chest supported row or bent over row or whatever, whatever it will be. So that's my best advice, but you can appreciate it. it's got to be unique to you. Mystic Carves, great name. Me too. Uh, is training for failure for everyone? It's, it's definitely not for everyone. For me, training to failure is actually a skill and you have to earn, like you have to get good at that skill and that skill can take a long, long time to learn. So really like failure is like expert, right? Intermediate, like high high intermediate to expert. And then you'd say one or two reps in reserve is like an intermediate and then three or four is like a beginner or something like that, right? It's obviously not exactly like that. I'm just trying to keep it in layman's terms so you guys can understand. You've got to go up those beginner ranks to get good at failure. It takes time. Like there's no way that a beginner is training as hard as I can it's not possible for them to do that. You know, I've had the mindset for it. I've had the the aerobic capacity, the physical capacity to do it. And I've been doing it for the last four or five years and I'm very, very good at it. So if someone can come in and beat me on failure or actually drive to failure safely with all the tension on the muscle as a beginner, I'll take my hat off and I'll shake the hand, but I can't imagine this happening, right? Because going to failure is a skill. So it's definitely not for everyone. And then if you want to go even further on, you can kind of you can kind of match training to personality to a certain extent. For me, like training is an outlet, training is 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 therapy, training is this huge release of energy for me that builds up that I find and 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 I just like to fucking go at it and I like to beat myself, I like to leave everything on the table and I like to just give myself no excuse. And I know a lot of people like that. I know a lot of fucking bodybuilders like that. So guess what? They love training to failure. If I told a lot of the people that I coach, um, you know what? I just need you to hold off two or three reps on this set, every single set. They wouldn't be able to do it because they just, they're not mentality. They're not, they're not there, right? But if you take someone who's potentially more calculated, potentially someone who's a little bit more calmer, a little bit more placid, a little bit more tactile, it, it, you know what that the the R and R training, the reps and reserves, the RPE, the the rate of perceived exertion being 
at six and then progressing up to a nine and never really hitting true failure, it really, really suits some people. Some people just aren't that like burst of, of energy, that anger, that not even anger, that just that passion, that this. It's not, not, it's not even not passionate, you know, it's, it's the wrong word. It's just some people are more placid and they don't need to get all fucking angry and scream and shout, even though we love it. Some of us love it. It's not for everyone and you've got to match that personality as well. So you've got to be uh, considerate of that. Actually, I'm a little sip. I poured uh, I poured the monster into a into a cup today, and I put some ice in it because I was a little bit I was a little bit warm. Lovely. Um. Okay then. How often do you switch your training program up? Probably depends on progress. Um. On average, uh, ten to sixteen weeks. It takes me about 10 to 16 weeks. Not too much at all. Um, I, I, I accumulate fatigue at a, at a medium to slow rate. I'm pretty good at bullying my way through training for a while. So like 10 to 16 weeks. I have clients who uh, accumulate fatigue pretty quickly and they'll deload after 8 to 10 weeks. Uh, and I have people that just are monsters and they're young and they're full of spunk and they can keep going and going and going. Connor Launder to, to be specific. Um, that kid's a bit of a beast. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm just trying to find these questions. There's a lot of questions that aren't about training. When training, when to tr- program an arm day if a weak body part is about weak, W E E K, by the way, <laughs> but you don't want to waste a day of training. You're not wasting a day of training on arms. That is the mentality that gives you small arms. Um, that was the mentality that gave me small arms. Or I'll just tag them on at the end. It's not fucking enough, mate. It's enough for some people. Not enough for a lot of people. Um, so you just program it in, right? Or if you can train twice a day, you could do biceps in the evening or triceps in the evening after a push or a pull, depending on um, depending, on, depending on what you fancy. Um, thoughts on growing up? There's a lot of questions on your arms. Um, I, I think I kind of... Talked about that a little bit at the beginning, so I don't need to kind of go back on that. Um, skeep cap, skeep capula, <laughs> keep scapula forward. So your scapula is your, uh, oh my god, what is the shoulder blade? Jesus Christ! <laughs> keep your shoulder blade forward when doing a rear delt row or back versus letting it move naturally. Let it move naturally. Yeah, a lot of movements, I say, just let it move naturally. Like keep yourself stable. Keep the keep the joint safe. Like so I don't mean just don't hold any tension in the joint and just let it flick around. Like obviously hold the tension in the joint, but then just allow what happens. And like you'll feel that. You'll feel what feels safe. In fact, you'll probably do what feels safe naturally because it's just the way the body works, right? But you know, hold the joint steady, perform the movement, and then film it and then send it to me and I'll tell you. <laughs> but but you can probably do exactly what you, you know, naturally it's gonna be sound. How would you set up a three-day split and balance the volume and exercise choice? Uh, good question. So a lot of this would depend on the time the person has available. Um, but more like because you've got three training day windows, you've got three opportunities to hit muscles um, over the week. 
you probably want to be grouping muscles together. So there'd be a few variations that you would potentially go on depending on your training career. If you were very, very advanced and you had a lot of muscle, you could get away with the push-pull legs once a week and you could just fucking hammer it and you'd be probably sound. If you're a little bit less developed and you're a little bit more lifestyle, you could look towards a full body three times a week or you could do an upper-lower four times a week or you could even do um, like a lower-upper and then maybe a push or a pull depending on on where you are and then you could alternate it you know there's so there's so many ways that you could do it i'm gonna say let's do a full body and you'd set it up like one day you would do legs first one day you would do back first one day you would do push first right and then you'd probably look to do one main compound on each of those so it will be pretty compound heavy um and then you'd work into isolations accordingly I'd look for anywhere between four to four four i'd start four sets per body part um and just like that's already going to be 12 sets per body part across three sessions so just try that and then go to like four sets or so uh did i say four or five but you can just creep the sets up slowly as you as you start there what is the most optimum for hypertrophy high volume low intensity or vice versa well, in, like, intensity needs to be there as a minimum. I think the general consensus in experts, the general consensus in science is that there is a minimum intensity that you need to achieve. So there is no place for low intensity. There's a place for minimum intensity. Like So you could say higher volume and lower intensity or higher intensity and lower volume. And I would say that both probably have a very, very similar effect what will dictate what gets a better effect will be how well you can perform one or the other. So, you know, do you really perform well being calculated and progressing things up like we said earlier? Then, you know, try some R&R R &R training. Do you feel like you want to go balls to balls? Then try that. So, I think, uh, yeah, you got to be you'll be conscious of that. Um, Arnold and others sometimes train for five hours a day. I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, so the question is, Arnie and others sometimes trained for five hours a day. Dorian only did 40 minutes. Who is optimal? Well, we can look at the physiques, which is what most people would do, and go, so you look at Dorian, he's twice his size, so 40 minutes is better. I'm going to go ahead and say this is very, very similar to the previous question in the fact that both work. Both work really, really well. I think it's what, what you prefer. There is no way that Arnold did five hours of training. That's absolute bullshit. I will call him out to his face if he did five hours of training. Don't get me wrong. He might have been in the gym for five hours, but he was not training for five hours. He was doing an hour and resting or doing fucking 10 minutes and resting and then coming back on it. So you got to be, uh, you got to see the bullshit. Uh, splitting training in the AM and PM. No reason why you can't do that at all. If you've got the time to do it, um, you've got the ability to recover in between. There is no reason why you can't do that. In fact, you probably get quite good, pretty good off that. You know, like the, the benefit of frequency is splitting the volume and having more efficient sets at higher vol uh, uh, at higher intensity. So you've got 20 sets a week, splitting that 20 sets over four or five days, you, you would perform those 20 sets better than you did 20 sets in one session. So it makes sense to split them to two, to do days, two sessions in a day if you can, if you've got the time, that'd be absolutely fine. Um, how many sets are considered the upper limit on each muscle group? Um, I think he means in terms of like, like how many sets can you do per week? Per week, like a lot of it is going to be very, very individual. Um, and I think that 
what you should do here is 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 just start at the low and work up to the high because where you recover in your pull training might be different from my pull training but you may be really really shit at chest training but i might be really really good so if you look at the top guys who talk about the maximum sets that you can do you know rpd mike revive stronger jared um jared feather these these type of guys like they they know their volume for that like I, I i hear steve talk about how his back needs a little bit more volume to grow over this over the week so he puts more up right so it's got to be a progress there's no upper limit of where i say this is too much um because i'm never going to guess that but generally speaking like generally most people end up not being able to do more than like 16 to 20 ish like efficient sets we're not talking like shit work we're talking about 20 very very good sets so yeah difficult though thoughts on tom platt style in training super high reps intensity yeah that's going to make you grow ultimately you progress the stimulus you're going to grow so got to be careful of that um there's a few questions here i can't answer because it's not about training training um What are the top set and down set rep ranges you use most? Um, I use like a six to 10 on my most top sets. Top set and back off set, a lot of people get confused by this. It just means set one, set two. We just call it a top and back because one's heavier, one's lighter. It's no difference at all. Um, like a six to 10 and a 10 to 15, so a lower and a higher rep range. Um, yeah. Benefits and negatives of putting your heavier lifts later on in the session. So the, the, the question doesn't make sense, right? Your heavier lifts like that's all relative to the muscle right so you could take a one rep max bicep curl and that would be your heaviest lift of the day if you were doing 15 to 20 reps and everything else but i think he means what would you do with the compound movements later on i would assume i'm just going to assume that that's what he means so what's the benefits and negatives of putting your compound lifts later on in the session so there's a few things you need to think of first of all compound movement generally we call them like our most bang for your buck exercises because you're using multi-joints multi-muscles under a lot of stress and you're very very strong so you can drive a lot of mechanical tension through the muscle obviously you want to have a lot of energy available for these because they're multi-joint multi-muscle movements so they need a lot of energy going to multiple different places so by that thought process you probably would want to put a lot of your heavier a lot of your compound lifts at the start um, or closer to the start possibly after you've maybe done some activation work and, and, and warming up because you've got more energy available and it's going to be very very taxing now in saying that i have been putting rdls dorian deadlifts and hip hinges at the end of my pool sessions and the one thing that i've noticed is that it's keeping me humble and it's keeping the weight that i do obviously lower but in doing that i'm much much safer because the muscle is is generally speaking just just it's tired right so i'm not going to be able to lift as much weight as i was lifting if i was doing it first now obviously you're then therefore putting less tension through the muscle so is that less hypertrophy well i would say that because you've not done that big heavy exercise at the start you've managed to put a little bit more into the exercises at the beginning and you've potentially accumulated more direct fatigue to the muscle than perhaps you would have if you did that at the start so there's you know what it could go both ways it really really could go both ways and, and i'm just trying to list the benefits and the negatives so not only does it keep you humble at the end the weight's a little bit lower it keeps you safer but you got no choice then but 
because like it still feels light in your hands, right? Relatively, like doing a two hundred kilo deadlift versus like let's say a one sixty at the end. Like you haven't necessarily lost that grip strength and that ability to hold that weight. Obviously, you're fatigued through the movement, but you haven't. Like it still feels quite light. So your form is banging. The form is banging, you know, and it is such a good, good opportunity to really, really have good form. So there's pros and cons to both. I would definitely recommend that largely you should be having your heavier, uh, your I shouldn't say that, heavy, having your compound movements earlier on. Um, but don't, like, I wouldn't be throwing them, I wouldn't be throwing loads of them after, like, maximum one at the end, you know, like, but mostly you want to be getting your good work done early, in my opinion, I would say. Yeah, I would say. Just gonna take another drink. Are you a, are you a fan of maintenance blocks? Um, so he doesn't mean maintenance blocks here in terms of like uh, physique, calories, macros. So not like keeping your body maintained for a period of time to solidify tissue, to solidify body fat set point or whatever. He's talking about would you do a maintenance volume phase, which in in the scheme of in the scheme of what I do, I don't do that thing. I don't. I don't do low volume. I don't do low volume phases because, generally speaking, my volume is pretty low. I just literally just take a time, take five six days off, and then go after it. But in the scheme of like maintenance phases for people who manipulate their volume, it makes a lot of sense. So essentially, we've got a sensitivity to volume. Volume being the amount that you lift, right? So your body is just recognizing the amount of rep sets and weight that you do. So the people that do RPE or reps and reserves or progressive volume or undulating periodization, whatever it is where your volume is changing, as you change your volume, you are up-regulating to that volume. So let's say you start on two sets on everything for week one and week two, then you add another set in for week three and four, then you add another set in for four or five, and then eventually you end up on four or five sets. And your body has accumulated this and progressively overloaded to this four or five sets. So if you were to go back down to two sets again, you wouldn't get that same stimulus because it's, it's so much less work, right? So this is how these maintenance phases comes in in terms of volume. So you would run a block of whatever, eight to 12 weeks of progressive volume up to maybe four or five sets in the last week, working a little bit closer to failure. You'd then deload um, and then you'd run a maintenance phase where you would literally strip back your volume, um, potentially put your intensity up a little bit, but you'd strip back your volume. So you'd go from those four or five sets that you finished your meso cycle or your site, your training cycle on, and you'd strip that back down to two or three sets again, and you'd stay there for four or five weeks as you as you as you uh, down regulate your sensitivity to to volume, so that you can upregulate it again. So it's this constant cycle of upregulating up, up your body to uh, feeling the stimulus to downroad down downregulating it so that it can feel that stimulus again. And like for me, that's a little bit complicated. And for me, I don't know how closely that works. And for me, if I was to go from like four sets or so to just like two, I'd be like, mm, this is a, this doesn't feel right, right? So this is why I train to failure right? and I do stuff like that. So I hope that makes sense. Um. Yeah, best exercise for increasing overall leg strength. I mean, nothing really. Leg press, probably. Um, best exercises to shorten every muscle group. That's a good question. Um, so, he, by short, he means fully contracted. So, our muscles have... Our muscles work through a range of motion, right? 
to fully lengthened when they are fully stretched out to fully contracted or shortened when they are f fully contracted, right? So in a bicep curl, when your hand is down by your side, it's lengthened. When you curl up, it's it's contracted. We know that the ability for a muscle to get into that fully, fully contracted position, so a bicep curl when you're curled right up, that ability gets less and less and less as you work through the session. So a lot of the time, it makes sense for us to work that range of motion first because we know that as we start to work into other movements, that ability gets harder and harder to, to exhaust. Not only that, but most compound movements tend to not work that really short range of motion or they're really um, not short range of motion the really shortened position of a muscle so let's take if you can if you can picture a hack squat right or a leg press you never fully extend at the knee right because if you fully extend at the knee your knee's going to snap in half but actually that is like a position that your knee needs to get into well it doesn't need to get into but that's a position that your quad brings your knee into and you can overload that to kind of get a little bit more stimulus. And then if you put yourself, so where we've just put ourselves in our heads to our hack squat and we've gone down and think about going all the way down. You know, sometimes people don't even get fully all the way down. And then you come to come, you know, maybe 80% of the way up, 90% of the way up, but you don't want to extend at the knee. And now picture yourself on a leg extension. What do you do? You fully extend at the knee and you try kick it through the roof. And that's working that 10% that you weren't working in your hack squat. So if you do that first, you work that 10% that wasn't working in your hat squat and you focus on that, you know, you're not gonna take a, you're not gonna have that energy taken away if you stuck that at the end of your hack squat. So you do a hack squat, then you do a leg press, you're battered, you're tired, and then you gotta go do a fully extended leg extension. Like it's very, very difficult because that ability is diminished. So I generally put them first. So for example, what's the best exercise to get everything short? Leg extension for a quad. Uh, seated ham or a, or a lying ham for a, for a, for a hamstring uh, for your back like a hammer strength pull down or a pull over for your chest like a a fly would be really really good. Um, what else is there? A bicep you could do like a, a a a preacher curl with a cable would be really really good for tricep like a cuffed tricep pull down would be really really good to get to get the muscle short. Um, and you've got to think about muscles this way thinking about what's going to get them short first because that ability does diminish. It's not going to say that you're not going to get what you need out of it. You you, you may well get enough out of it, but just to be a little bit more optimal, it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense to not do that. Um, you know what? I'm going to throw a cherry in here for those guys who have, who have stuck with me. Is the Brandon Harding be finished? Saw you comment on his recent post. This is not to do a training. Uh, yeah, it is. He, he apologized. He he um he sent me like three or four voice notes apologizing for everything. So yeah, we squashed that beef. Uh, I'm only gonna do a few more. We're creeping up on forty minutes, so we'll we'll, we'll just do a few more. Um, how long should you rest between your sets? I think that this will depend on the movement. And it will depend on what you're trying to get out of the movement. For me, I'm training to failure. So I know that I need to get the single most maximum effort that I can out of a movement in order for me to reap the rewards. My volume is low. I'm only doing a couple sets per these big big compound e exercises. So I need to make the fucking most of it, right? Therefore, I, I take the rest that I need. I literally just take the rest that I need. 
it generally falls around three to five minutes, but I just take the rest that I need and I wait until I'm ready. And I do that on every single set except for my lower energy demanding exercises. For example, bicep curls, for example, tricep pushdowns, for example, any isolation that's not really that taxing, I will probably limit my rest to two or three minutes. But on those big compounds where I'm trying to fucking put everything on the table, everything on the line, I will rest as long as I need to um, until I am fully recovered to be able to put my maximum into into that movement. Working on working slow on each eccentric movements and reduce weight and progressive overload. That's literally the question. Uh, yes, you should do that slowing down your eccentric increases your control it increases your safety it keeps the tension on the muscle versus passive tissues we actually break down more muscle during the eccentric than the concentric it's very energy efficient um and it, to be in that situation so it makes a lot of sense to do that and that's it i'm gonna leave that there i, I didn't want to rant on too long uh, i got a few questions out there with a lot of with a lot of answers so I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, let me know if, if you've got any questions about it. Let me know if uh, you got any questions about it. And uh, we'll speak soon, guys. Peace and love, everybody. Goodbye.